So again, John chapter 20, uh, beginning at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of our Lord. As we look at this passage, I want us to ask some of the obvious questions. One is, who is this Mary? Now, this is certainly not Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it's not Mary, the mother of James, and it's not the, the Mary who anointed uh, Jesus at Bethany in John chapter 12. Who is this Mary? It's interesting that the Bible speaks rather sparingly about this Mary. But Mary appears to be from a village called Magdala, a small village on the western shore of Galilee. It's likely she's called Mary Magdalene uh, for this very reason. And while it's impossible to uh, confirm if Jesus ever actually Uh, visited this village, Mary uh, became a relatively early follower of Jesus, and she helped to support him, uh, we're told by Luke in Luke chapter 8, from her own financial means. That's an interesting thing to notice. In fact, there were a group of women who uh, together seemed to have been wealthy enough to travel with Jesus and to serve as uh, somewhat of a logistical support network for Jesus. It's fair to assume that these particular women were relatively wealthy. And uh, in this group, uh, we hear the name of one woman, uh, Joanna, whose husband was one of the household stewards of Herod. And so this Mary in our passage, this uh, Mary of Magdala, was resourceful enough to rise from the typical life of a fishing village on the shores of Galilee to become wealthy enough to devote Uh, perhaps as much as a year or more, to travel with a rabbi. So we do know very little about her. But she did accompany Jesus in this last week of his ministry in Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where we actually learn the most about Mary. Uh, The Bible is clear that Mary was there at the hill of Calvary when the dark scene of Jesus' death on the cross unfolded. She stood at a distance when darkness enveloped the scene, and at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., 
Jesus cried out his last words and was served the sour wine and then yielded up his spirit. She was there. She watched him die on the cross, and as if that crushing sight were not enough, Mary, of all women, had the clarity of mind to linger around and to wait and see what they would do with his body. She also had the courage to watch the tomb early in the morning darkness to see uh, what was going on, and she saw that the stone had been rolled away. So from a small fishing village to the accumulation of financial means necessary to engage in the work of supporting Jesus in the background of his traveling ministry, feeding and caring for him, and then her, uh, her life climaxing, it would seem, at the, at the public execution of that same rabbi, a fishing village, a means to support Jesus, and then uh, the execution of that same Jesus. From the perspective of the Bible, she was a woman whose life uh, centers on Jesus, his movement. It's a life that centers even on the great week of suffering of that great teacher. If we were to uh, write a biography of this Mary, we would have to say that she was a woman born to support a man on his path to his own execution. Remarkable life. And yet there's more here about Mary, and all of this is important as we look in to this scene. Because in addition to all of this, she was a woman whose life was tragically interrupted by the ministry of the devil. Luke, the physician-turned-historian, tells us a key feature about the background of Mary. Sometime in her life, she was particularly seized upon by the devil and inhabited by seven demons. Luke 8. Her life used to be on an entirely different path before Jesus ministered to her. Uh, The kind of path with demonic possession uh, that entirely removed her from the society of home and friends. Removed her presumably from the ability to increase her wealth. To participate in the life of worship in the city of Jerusalem at the temple. The kind of path that removed her from acceptability before others. Jesus healed Mary. The one who would himself die tragically had not only uh, returned to Mary the life she had lost to the seven demons, but here in this scene, uh, he gives her a life that she had never known before. This is that Jesus. This is that rabbi. This is that rabboni. He is the one who healed her. And in that healing gave to her a life that was entirely different than the life she lived before. A life in which Jesus is the very center of all of her existence. Service to the Son of God is everything for Mary. And not only an eternal life, but a life knowing, as it were, where to place all of one's efforts and energies. Nothing mattered more to Mary than Jesus. She owed everything to him. And he was killed before her eyes and before the eyes of Jerusalem. It would be better perhaps to say, given the passage we looked at last week, that he was killed before the eyes of Mary's known world. Everyone took in the death of Jesus. Now, it's important for us to keep that in our minds as we look at this passage. Because our scene opens this morning with Mary. But not just Mary. What's Mary doing? Well, look what verse 11 says. 
weeping outside the tomb. The story of a woman's life. Three times in our passage she's referred to as the one who is weeping. Everyone in the scene would seem to comment on the fact that Mary is weeping. Almost everything about her past is wiped away. She's the weeping woman in this scene. And yet, also in this scene, the woman who is described repeatedly as the woman who weeps, uh, the woman whose history is a history filled of service to Jesus, climaxing in that Passion Week in Jerusalem, much of what we know about her in the scene is weeping, and yet, at the very end of the scene, what is the weeping Mary doing? She's worshiping. She's moving. She's announcing. What happened? The intensity of the scene is a weeping, mysterious woman, and she ends the scene worshiping, moving, and announcing. Well, that's what we need to look at this morning. Thank you for being here uh, this Easter. Now, while this morning I can't say everything about the resurrection of Jesus that the Bible does, I want you to notice a couple of things about this scene. I want you to notice the noise of Mary's heart. We're given some details about Mary's state. And so I want you to listen to uh, the noise of Mary's heart, but I also want you to notice the noise of the voice of Jesus. So there you have it, a two-point sermon with a long introduction, I'll grant. Well, to see where I'm going, you really could just uh, ask yourself right now what it is that turns Mary's weeping into worship. And the short answer is the voice of Jesus. But uh, we need to begin uh, with the very state of Mary. I think there's a few things uh, that describe Mary's uh, state. Uh, She is a woman who is in the state of grief, a state of confusion, a state of disbelief, and a state of, interestingly enough, pragmatism. I have to tell you what I mean. Uh, Clearly, verses 11 and 12, she's overcome with grief. Uh, She arrives on the scene crying, and she uh, cries as she looks into the tomb, and she cries as she turns to see Jesus. There's uh, almost tears everywhere in this passage, uh, uninterrupted tears. Uh, John says, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She was weeping even before she looked into the tomb, and she's stooping crying looking into that tomb when mary sees the two angels in white have you noticed that she seems to be almost just unfazed not even shocked Uh, the news that comes to us in this word governed by the holy spirit is the news of mary who's so overcome by grief uh, that she doesn't seem to even be shocked by the angels and she just takes in the position of the angels. Isn't that interesting detail? She noticed that one's at the head and one's at the feet. Verse verse 12 of our passage. But as Mary is filled with grief, it doesn't seem to rise to a point of discussion and it certainly doesn't lessen her grief. It's almost just taken in. One at the head, one at the feet. And so she is riddled with grief. But she's not only overcome with grief, she's also overcome with confusion. Uh, I, I wonder why it is that the angels were placed in this particular scene. Do you wonder that as well? 
I wonder this. I wonder if the angels are placed in this scene uh, by God's very eternal counsel, uh, not so much for Mary's purpose, but for our purpose. Listen to the question that one of the angels offers. Woman, why are you weeping? Now, if there wasn't someone on the scene to ask, woman, why are you weeping? We wouldn't have this, uh, this way of understanding uh, what it is that Mary thinks is causing her the problem. Woman, why are you weeping? Do you think the angels existed to ask that question that we might then hear Mary's response and have it encapsulated here by the Holy Spirit in the Bible on our laps in front of us? I wonder. And so, woman, why are you weeping? That's their question. Uh, they're asking a question for us that we perhaps uh, would not ask. Why are you weeping? The question is posed so that we might know what's going on in her heart, what's behind the tears. And she says two things in verse 13. She says, they've taken away my Lord. And she says, I do not know where they have laid him. That's how Mary understands the reason why she is weeping. It's interesting that she doesn't simply say that uh, someone who's very important to me has died. Grief. That's That's not how she answers the question. Someone who's important to me has died. She says, they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. The concern seems to be one about, well, about a corpse, about a dead body. If she was at the tomb once already, it would seem, earlier in the morning. Uh, so she's been confused about this for a while. Where is the body? And so uh, we can leave it right there that not only is this a woman who is overcome with grief, it's not just grief that overcomes her. It's also a sense of confusion. Where's the body? You know, we might imagine that when posed the question, why are you weeping? She might just say, a friend has died. A teacher has died. My heart's broken. She wants to know where the body is. I think that points to the fact that Mary is not just filled with grief, she's filled with confusion. Let me say two more things. Uh, She's also filled with disbelief. When uh, John uh, recounts this story, he says in verse 14, he says that Mary uh, turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. You know, think about that. She turned around, she saw Jesus standing, and she didn't know that it was Jesus. Verse 14 makes it poignantly clear that it's Jesus who's there. But she didn't, she didn't know that it was Jesus. Now, We might ask, how do we get the information of verse 14? We get the information of verse 14 because, well, Mary herself describes it. It's Mary here. And Mary goes to the disciples and and they learn about this story from Mary's lips. And Mary is the one who says, it was Jesus, it was Jesus, it was Jesus uh, standing there. I turned to him. It was Jesus. But I didn't know. I didn't know. How could she not know? Mary selflessly confesses that this is the case, even though it's staggering to consider. I didn't know. She's overcome with grief. She's overcome with, with, uh, uh, with uh, confusion. She's overcome with disbelief. I just didn't even know it was him. Now, there's something else I think she's overcome with. I think she's overcome with skepticism. This is a kind of confusion. 
Isn't it remarkable that her, that her default was to disbelieve Jesus? That's her default. Her default is to assume that whoever this human being in front of me is, it's not Jesus. Whoever it is, it's not Jesus. All of the disciples... In Jesus' teaching ministry, uh, he taught openly that he would die and that he would rise again on the third day. And here's the third day. But her default is to say that there's no way this can be true. There's no way this can be true. And so we have a woman full of grief, full of disbelief. Uh, She is uh, full of confusion. But there's one more thing. She's full of pragmatism. Look what happens In verse 15, when Jesus addresses Mary for the first time, for the first time in verse 15, she confesses her whole task of the morning. She says in verse 15, she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. That's verse 15. What kind of a person would say that? Who would say that? Just tell me where he is, and I'll take care of him. You see, Mary likely assumed that this gardener was given special instructions by the owner of the tomb. And the owner of the tomb had given, her, given the gardener instructions like this, as Mary seems to imagine. Uh, give it a couple of days and then remove the body of an executed criminal from this particular tomb and move him to another tomb. That may be what Mary's thinking. But the reason Mary is asking for the body is this. Mary actually has the financial means to take care of this body. Do you notice that in verse 15? Mary, she actually has the financial means to do something that would be very expensive. Uh, If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. This can-do spirit, Mary can take care of the matter. She knows what to do. She can afford to do it. All she needs is the body. Now, what I'd like for us to do this morning is I'd like for us to just think about uh, these uh, three ways in which uh, Mary is overcome, uh, that she's overcome with grief and with confusion and disbelief, and and it sparks a pragmatic spirit. Uh, This is who Mary is in this scene. And we have to maybe park here to see it, but it's clear in Scripture. This is what we need to understand about Mary in this moment. She is dealing with um, all kinds of challenges, grief and confusion and disbelief and a can-do spirit of pragmatism. It's a cacophony of emotions. And no doubt all of these things are virtually indistinguishable in Mary's heart. They're swirling around in her heart. And so uh, we can, from the outside, uh, kind of analyze Mary and we can divide these components. But we know by experience that there's no way that Mary can herself distinguish all of these different kinds of uh, emotions. This is not Mary in her finest hour. We know this by experience. The noise of her emotions buzzing inside of her almost set her up for failure. But her life actually shows us an awful lot right now, right in this moment, when Mary is filled with uh, this kind of emotional cacophony. She's teaching us. Her life serves to show us the cacophony of actually what our own lives are often like. Just think about this for a moment. We're a tremendously busy people. 
there are so many uh, loose strings in life, it's almost impossible to keep them all together. Many of us really do feel this, that it's, that it's almost a miracle that they're able to cope with any given week, a miracle to make it through a day without blowing up. Because life is a lot like that. There are concerns everywhere, concerns uh, about uh, money, our paychecks, uh, our jobs, uh, relationships are deeply complex. Uh, our health is uncertain. Uh, we're trying to, to manage uh, our children. We're trying to manage our parents. And we can't even manage our own future. You know, life, it, it's just not like an encyclopedia where everything's organized alphabetically. I know I'm stating the obvious, but think about that. Life is strewn with challenges and surprises. There is a noise of life that's impossible to turn off. A sociologist after sociologist recognizes that uh, in a digital age, this actually has gotten worse, not better. I remember back in the uh, uh, late 90s, maybe it was 2001, 2002, reading a book called Data Smog by David Shank, uh, where he says that the, that the data around us is going to get so out of hand that we're going to need to have data to help us manage the data, more information to help us manage the sheer volume of information. Life is noisy. I love a famous quote of uh, Machen as he's looking out of, at seminarians that are preparing for ministry. Um, and he says, we live in a weary age. We live in an age that's filled with crash and jazz and noise and rattle and smoke. I love that. I use it all the time. That's the age that we live in as well. Swirling around us. We are tremendously busy because we live in a very noisy World and we live noisy lives in that world. But the disordered nature of our lives actually mirrors the disordered nature of our own hearts. What a glorious picture Mary by the Holy Spirit offers to us. The disordered nature of our own hearts. Mary's state of grief and confusion and disbelief and pragmatism. Well, that's our own state. I'm speaking to you this morning as a Christian. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes we look out at the world and we assume that, uh, that that's the way non-believers live. That's not the way believers live. But tell me, don't you struggle with grief? Not just lost loved ones, but just grief over the sadness of the world, the brokenness of the world. There is so much in the world to cry over. And Christian, if you don't see the grief of the world uh, and the grief of your own heart, do you see the confusion of the world and the confusion that lives and swirls inside of your own heart? Uh, we live with unmet desires, battling affections. We live with uh, anger. We live with a sense of helplessness and lack of control. And we become afraid. Don't you sense that confusion inside of you ever? And what about disbelief? Christian, do you ever feel disbelief? Various hours, 
various days, various weeks, where there almost seems like there's no worth of Christianity in your life. Uh, there's, There's no immediate value for this faith for which you proclaim. Do you ever feel that, Christian? The disbelief that adds to the inner noise of our lives. And what about pragmatism? That wonderfully powerful feeling of being able to solve your own problems. Turning all of life into a matter of exercising your abilities. A pragmatism that focuses on doing Christianity rather than being a Christian. Brothers and sisters, you know what I mean by that. Doing Christianity. Mary, by the Holy Spirit, is an excellent picture of a noise that we carry around with us all the time. Grief and confusion and disbelief and pragmatism. This is where all of us are. This is the internal noise of life until our Lord and Savior in that great day comes again. We have that noise with us. And if we're not careful, my brothers and my sisters, if we're not careful, uh, we're going to create a coping mechanism for dealing with that noise that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ resurrected. And I think you know that as well. We have a tremendous power to just cope with life, to just make do. And the power of our resurrected Lord seems to be not on the back burner, but back behind the stove. And we cope, and we cope, and we cope. Well, before I pull us out of this, let me offer one more illustration. (laughs) Happy Easter, by the way. A great Scottish minister by the name of Alexander White uh, had the same concern of his congregation in the early 19th century. And he looks out at his congregation and he knows that the church is full of people who uh, would really rather uh, cope with life than uh, see and taste and experience Christ reigning now and here. He saw people who struggled to see Christ at work and so they just coped. He saw a people who, in his words, uh, found it hard to believe that amid the rude framework of daily life, from under the crushing tread of sorrow and sickness and death, in the cold and all but lifeless routine of religious duties, Jesus should be patiently following his eternal purpose of grace towards them. You hear what he's noticing? He's noticing not one thing, but two things in his congregation. He knows that they struggle amid the rude framework of daily life, the crushing tread of sorrow and sickness and death, and the cold and all but lifeless routine of religious duties. He saw that, but he also saw this. Jesus Christ patiently tracing out his eternal purpose of grace towards each and every Christian in the congregation. It's Easter. I have an opportunity to remind you of that great purpose of Christ. To patiently, full of long-suffering love, unfold the purpose of his grace towards you. Moment by moment by moment. And so we need to talk about the voice of Jesus. 
Because amidst the noise of Mary's heart and the noise of our own busy lives, Jesus speaks. And he's the one who makes the loudest noise to jar Mary out of her grief, to jar Mary out of her confusion, to jar Mary out of her disbelief, and to jar Mary out of her pragmatism. What does John say in this passage is the event that woke Mary up. It's in verse 16. Mary. Mary. This changes everything. You see it clearly in the passage. Jesus saying Mary changes everything in the passage. Uh, with, uh, all, with, with that one word, all of the plotting and the planning and the coping of Mary, well, it's laid aside. She simply calls him Rabboni, a word from her native tongue that couldn't be more natural. In verse 15, Jesus says, or in verse 15, she wants to say to Jesus, Sir, she speaking to the gardener, but now she says, My master. One word. The voice of Jesus. And not only does Mary uh, lay aside all of her coping mechanisms, all of her planning and plotting, uh, she lays those aside that she would simply respond with uh, Rabboni. Uh, She also worships. With that one word, Mary, she uh, clearly, uh, the the evidence of the passage shows us this. She uh, falls upon her face and she uh, clings to his feet in adoration. Uh, Everything is set aside in Mary's existence in that particular moment. All of the confusion is set aside that she might fall on her face and grab her Savior's ankles. But think about this as well. Uh, Even the angels are set aside. Behind her in the tomb are angels. Beautiful to behold. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. Mary. And she calls him Rabboni. And she worships him. You know... If you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, I want this to be a reminder to you. The very nature of Christianity is not what you have done, but what God has done. Do you remember that? The very nature of Christianity is not your uh, noisiness of heart that needs uh, to be rescued. It's not your, uh, your consternation and your figuring things out. The real nature of Christianity is the revelation of God himself. He's the initiator of the relationship that you have with him. He is the one who outnoises your noisiness. He's the one who does that. And you need to be reminded of that, Christian, and I need to be reminded of that. He takes divine initiative. Mary. Well, what then does this voice assert? There's a lot here. There's three things in particular that I want us to see before we close. Uh, what, uh, what does the voice of Jesus assert? It asserts, first of all, that he is victorious. He's not in the tomb, is he? Uh, uh, John tells us that she has to turn around. It's as if Jesus is 180 degrees from the tomb. Death was unable to keep him. There's no charge of unrighteousness to him that would cause him to remain dead. The very speaking of Jesus, the very existence of Jesus shows that he is victorious. So in answer to the question, what does the voice of Jesus assert? The first thing is, is that he is the victor. Mary's greatest enemy 
was the rebelliousness of Adam. The spiritual death that Adam had earned for her. But Jesus, he's victorious. That death was unable to keep him. And the second thing that the voice of Jesus asserts is it asserts that he's personal. Notice that he calls her by name. Knowing us by name is a very important image in Scripture. The very nature of the Lamb's book of life should tell us this. The fact that that God has actually written down my name, John F. Jones. That's staggering to the imagination. The finger of God has written the law of Moses. The finger of God has written my name in the Lamb's book of life. Your name in the book of life. God calls us personally. He knows us. Even from before we were born, before we received our earthly names, he knows our name. And so he calls Mary by name. The voice of Jesus asserts he's victorious, and the voice of Jesus asserts that he's personal. But the voice of Jesus also asserts that he is deliberate. That he's deliberate. That there is a plan afoot. There is something that is spinning around Mary that is larger than Mary. And as noisy as Mary's life might get, there is a louder noise, not just the speaking of Jesus, but the very plan of Jesus. He has a plan to reign and to one day return. That's what he's letting Mary know. In this passage, uh, one of the difficult questions is, who is this Mary? But another difficult question is the uh, passage of verse 17, in which uh, she uh, grabs uh, a hold of Jesus, but Jesus actually uh, refuses to allow her to do that and we wonder uh, why that is and I don't know if this is you as well but uh, when I was a new Christian I assumed there was some kind of magical property to that body that for some reason she shouldn't touch the body Uh, but it always struck me that she that Jesus actually commands Thomas to do exactly what Mary is doing right now and that's touch the body so uh, why does he not allow her to uh, remain clinging to his body if you are here this morning and you thought there was some magical notion of that body that's not the case one commentator uh, looks at it this way he uh, jesus he knows mary he's called her by name but he has also taught her Uh, he knows everything about her uh, and when he looks at mary he sees that she has an, an unreasonable desire as one commentator calls it an unreasonable desire to keep jesus in the world Think about that. Jesus is a plan. He knows what he's doing. He must sit at the right hand of God and reign for all eternity. And as Mary is clinging to him, Jesus is saying to her, not now. He has a plan. He sees that she's trying to keep him in his world. Uh, Don Carson says that what's going on in Mary's uh, mind is that she desires to hang on to him as long as possible to keep him from disappearing permanently. It's a misunderstanding of some sort. And what Jesus asserts is not only that he's victorious and that he's personal, but he's asserting right here that he's deliberate. There's a plan from before all creation. This is the manner by which people are reconciled to God. 
He's saying to Mary, the resurrection isn't at this moment full and complete until he sits at the right hand of the Father. This voice of Jesus, this noise of Jesus, it interrupts everything about Mary's expectations. He's victorious, he's personal, and he's deliberate. This is a reminder to all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. His noise is noisier than our noise. But before I close, I I feel as though I need to say something about verse 18. What is it actually that Mary does? Because that might shed some light on what we're to do as Christians. Well, look what Mary does. She actually offers a a personal testimony. Uh, John, as he's uh, capturing this moment, uh, Mary says, I have seen. I, my eyes, have seen. She's making a personal testimony that Jesus is real. He has entered into time and to space. He's, he's real. She touched him. The background was that she was once blind, ignorant, but now she sees. Isn't that remarkable? As Christians, we are actually told to provide a defense of what we believe uh, with a personal feeling, with attachment to something that is real. Always be willing to provide a reason for the hope within you. This is a Christian testimony, and Mary's doing that. I've seen him. And we, in our testimony, need to say, I know him. He works in me. I sense his work. And it's not just that she is making a personal testimony as if uh, her emotions alone would be convincing. She makes a personal testimony, but her testimony has one object. Look what she says in verse 18. He is the Lord. He is the one who has said these things to her. He is the one who uh, controls that testimony. Everything in your life, Christian, is about Jesus Christ. Everything about your life needs to be understood through the life and ministry of Jesus. As Mary uh, shares her testimony, as Mary uh, makes this great announcement, it's Jesus himself who's the center of that announcement. Uh, Jesus, not only uh, in terms of his person, who he is, but how Mary is supposed to understand who he is. He has said these things to me. Jesus not only stood before Mary, Jesus taught Mary, told her what to say about this testimony of himself. So what is Mary like? Mary is the kind of person who announces a personal testimony. She's the kind of person who who announces a testimony with one work. But she's also a person who announces a promise. And it may be hard to see, but look at the specific words that Jesus or, or that Mary picks up on as she shares her announcement at the very end of our passage. She says, uh, he called you brothers. Isn't that remarkable? His father and our father. His God and our God. This is an amazing thing to promise. That this Jesus has the power to make his father our father and his God our God. This is a tremendous promise that we ought to be holding out to others. So much is happening to Mary in this passage. 
And we need to look at this and pay attention. She shows up with a noisiness in her heart, and Jesus is noisier and tells her how to make sense of herself and her world. And then Mary, at the very end, goes out into that world, and she proclaims this work of Jesus, and we forget this as Christians. This is who we are. Now, what's the conclusion? Well, I would ask you, if you're here this morning and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, is your testimony like Mary's testimony? Are you able to uh, describe the confusion in your own heart? Are you able to confess that? That there are seasons in life, challenges in life, in which the the, the grief and the confusion, uh, in which the disbelief and the pragmatism are just overwhelming. I feel that as a Christian, is that part of your testimony? We would call this a testimony of humility. Acknowledgement that you too feel the noise of a world. But quick on the heels of that is your testimony, a testimony that's not about how you have conquered all of those ills, all of those problems, how you are able to cope with your life. May it be that those who don't believe in Jesus hear very little of your coping mechanisms and instead hear an awful lot about the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Mary does. She describes him as the one Lord. He said these things to me. Do you do that, Christian? And then finally, there's this. Do you offer to a world filled with broken people, filled with filth, filled with people who, un, who do not deserve any grace at all, do you say to them that this God has the power, has the power to be your God? This God has the power to take the one who is the God of Jesus and make him also your own God. This God is the one who has the power to draw you to himself. To hold you closely to him. To know everything about you. And to still love you. And to love you for all eternity. Is that your testimony to the world? That's what Mary does. I want to say to us that God is a God who is noisy. He is making himself known. How do I know that? You're here. You're here this morning. Why are you here? You're here because God has brought you to this place. That he might champion himself in his son, Jesus Christ. That you would be able to take in that this is the church, a body of people in need of great grace who have received that grace in only one way, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. You're here this morning for a reason. Take in the life of the church. This God, he's noisy. How noisy? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for not resisting us, leaving us, recoiling from us, living in a place impossible to find, 
the depths of the ocean, the back of a deep, dark cave. You have come to us. And we thank you, Father, for your noise. We thank you for your noise. Our Holy Father, we pray for those who do not know you. We pray, Father, that by your great grace, that noise would draw them to yourself. That all of their noise, as all of our noise, it becomes a whisper in the presence of the noise of our resurrected Jesus. In his name, amen.